All right, let's uh, come to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive into uh, His Word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we come with grateful hearts, Lord, and needy hearts as well. Lord, we know that we are lost and uh, without hope through the work of Your Son. And Lord, as we come to Your Word this morning, we come not just to be filled with knowledge, but the knowledge of Your will, and the truth of Your Son, and the saving grace of your beloved son this morning. And we, as we've just come around the breaking of bread, we are reminded of that great cost, the weightiness of that sacrifice. And as beneficiaries, Lord, the great gratitude we hold in our hearts. And as this was prayed this morning already, that peace that just overcomes us. So prepare our hearts as we come around your word this morning, Lord, that we may be edified and that you may be glorified. And we pray this in his name. Amen. It is a privilege to open God's Word to you this morning, and uh, as infrequently as I come, it's always a challenge to uh, either go through a book and then recap half of the sermon of what you missed for the past month and a half, because I'm generally up here every, every six months in this capacity preaching. So I, I battled on what to do and, and, and uh, what to go through, which book to go through, and I decided to pick up on something that I think is easy to, to stop and start, and that is going through the doctrines of grace, but starting with the, uh, the five solas uh, of the Reformation um, that lends itself to stopping and starting because they are distinct doctrinal lessons, which do, of course, build upon the foundational ones, which we'll be going through this morning, and that is sola scriptura. So um, it's easier to deal with them that way. Although it's my prayer that as we go through the five solas, you will see them as beautifully interlinked and vitally connected doctrines. They aren't distinct in that they stand on their own, but they have uh, been um, beautifully spread out through Scripture in an unbroken link and chain of doctrines. One of the things I wanted to start with this morning is to put to rest some of the historical criticisms of the so-called discovery of the five solas, or the five primary doctrines of grace. And, and one of the main historical criticisms is a belief that these solas are a recent discovery. And when I say recent, in the past 500 plus years. And, uh, and that if we just read the transcripts of the early church through the lens of our modern language, we would have a very different understanding of these doctrines. But is that so? Is it a new discovery? Some view the Reformation as a time where the doctrines of grace were kind of first revealed and maybe first articulated. And I recall discussing a, a controversial New Testament um, discovery, <laughs> uh, or shall I say maybe view of the gospel. It was called the New Perspective of Paul, which became very, very popular about 10, 15 years ago. And the proponents of this new so-called view of the gospel claim that the Pauline writings actually show um, that Paul is pleading to the church to be justified and unified with one another in socio-economical ways, racial ways, culturally, rather than being restored with God. And that that actually is the gospel we need to pursue. And that falls in line with social justice and now that's given birth to much more radical movements like that. But... Um, my point isn't to the details of that movement, but while discussing this particular doctrine with somebody about 10 years ago um, as what I would call another gospel and therefore an anathema, this pastor said to me, well, if it wasn't for the Reformation, we wouldn't have the doctrines of grace. Meaning that it's a recent and novel discovery, just like the new perspective of Paul. Therefore, keep an open mind, open mind and embrace it. Consider it to be true, because new is better. Discovery is good. Progression is a natural thing when going through God's Word. You see, he was making the assumption that the Reformation was responsible for uncovering these doctrines that we now proclaim. But is that so? Are these Reformation doctrines just another view, a recent one, when it comes to biblical doctrine? Or are they vital in understanding the gospel? So as we look at the five solas and the biblical principle and truths that, we've been, that have been rediscovered by the Reformers, 
It reminds us how profound and beautiful and simple the gospel is. Now, the Reformation of, was it 505 years ago now, was not the discovery or the beginning of what we now call the doctrines of grace. Luther, Calvin, Zwigli, they're not the architects of these doctrines, but they simply arrived at these familiar biblical doctrines, historically familiar biblical doctrines, through just letting the text speak for itself, letting the Bible interpret the Bible. They read it in a grammatical, historical, and contextual way that leads them to this understanding. Now, that's something that wasn't permitted at the time, not by the Catholic Church, which took advantage of the low literacy rates in the West generally, and the dependence the people had on this governmental body, which was the church, the the Catholic, I'll say lowercase church, let's just call it the Catholic uh, assembly and government. They were a ruling power. And this relationship with the church and the ruling government was almost indistinguishable in those days, one from the other. And their interest was retaining the control, not teaching the lost how to be saved, keeping them dependent, keeping them naive and needy. But let's look at how the doctrines of grace were known before the Reformation, before the 16th century. Now, before the famous trio of the Reformation, the early church fathers did indeed record the same understanding of election, predestination, by faith and grace alone. They used words that have since been refined, I'll give you that, and modernized, that's obvious. Um, But the meaning that they have in the historical sense had the same definitions, the same parlance, or different parlance, but same meaning. So we have to take into account that the church, remember, was in its infancy in the the early church, the first 200 years, in an infant stage. So the fathers in those churches, and when I say father, not in the Catholic sense, just, you know, historic church uh, pioneers, um, they had, because they were in the infant stage, they had sort of infant terminology to use and to address the things that they are understanding biblically and to describe a theology they were trying to fully grasp and understand. We've had 2,000 years since then to better refine our terminology, to better understand and study, um, for example, the relationship between regeneration and sanctification and how one is a prerequisite for the other. But in 100 AD, those distinctions were just being unpacked. Unpacked, Of course, they were biblical treasures being unpacked, but still being unpacked. Now, Matthew McCone, in his book, Augustine's Calvinism, has included dozens of quotes from many early church fathers, dating back from AD 69 to AD 200, and has worked with some of the original manuscripts to unpack, in their own words, what they were saying from the biblical texts. So let me just go through a few of these doctrines to illustrate that this is nothing new. This is not a Reformation discovery. Let's call it more of an archaeological find. They're finding what was already there. So on predestination, Clements Romanus, A.D. 69, on his commentary of the epistles, Epistle of Corinthians, wrote, The blessedness comes upon those that are chosen of God. That's predestination. Ignatius, A.D. 110, also on predestination, says this. There was such a difference between the infidels and the elect. Again, drawing a distinction. God draws out who? The elect. Who is left? The infidels, the unbelievers. Tertullian, A.D. 200, commenting on Isaiah 40, verse 5. McCone notes that, Tertullian distinguishes the issues of things and not substances. He says this, for, those, sorry, for who does not place the judgment of God in a twofold sentence of salvation and punishment? Wherefore all flesh is grass, which is appointed to the fire, and all flesh shall see, shall see salvation of God, which is obtained, sorry, which is ordained to salvation. Again, We are looking here at predestination and election. So Tertullian here is seeing that there are those who God ordained for salvation and those who God has not. They are not predestined for fire because all man deserves that very fate. But God has preordained those who he elects in salvation. 
to save them. Just a couple of more so we can establish that without a doubt, and I could have done a book on this. I mean, there's so many quotes to use. But in, to, to align with some of the doctrines we're looking at, let's look at total depravity, one that we'll unpack later, not today, but in this series. On total depravity, Ignatius, again, AD 110, writes, They that are carnal, says he, cannot do the things that are spiritual, nor they that are spiritual do the things that are carnal. Is neither faith the things of unbelief, nor unbelief the things of faith. Again, old, this is translated and still comes off very old world English. But here, Ignatius is articulating a spiritual discernment that can only come through spiritual salvation, a spiritual rebirth. And contrasting that, that man cannot comprehend spiritual things who has not been born again. And this is total depravity. Nothing new. On limited atonement, here, he wrote this, that Christ suffered for us, that we might be saved for our sins. And for our sins, Jesus Christ has died for us, that believing in His death, you may escape dying. For Jesus, for the life of believers. So he's being very specific here. He understood that Christ's atoning work on the cross is only effectual for those that are in Christ. And that this atoning for sin is limited to the elect, the believers, who He draws, who God has chosen. There are hundreds of examples that can be given to show that the Reformation wasn't the beginning of these doctrines, the five solas in particular that we'll be looking at. It was simply unearthed from centuries of suppression and deception by the ruling authorities over centuries. So... The early church writers didn't use the same terminologies. As, as I said before, um, that terminology that we have now become accustomed to, when we refer to things like limited atonement, they wouldn't have had that definition or the, that particular phrase or irresistible grace or perseverance of the saints. But the meaning is there. These are categories that we have come up with over, the, over time. So critics of the early church fathers claim that because they use a simpler or different terminology, they're not referring to what we now call the doctrines of grace, or dare I say, even Calvinism. So, while the church fathers understood the biblical meaning, they had not yet come up with the same terminology to express it in a way that our modern ears like to hear, and the categories that we become so familiar with. So, let's put that to rest. Yes, it's not been an invention of Luther or a, a discovery of the Reformation, but a rediscovery. So what are the five solas? Let's just look at that quickly, and then we'll dive into the first one, which is, the, I think, the foundational one, and I'll, I'll make that case. So the five solas are the five Latin phrases that were articulated and popularized during the Reformation of over 500 years ago. They, they emphasize the distinction between the doctrines of grace and the works-based doctrine of the church at that time, the, the Catholic Church. The word sola is the Latin for only. And we don't use Latin from this pulpit very often, so I felt it was necessary to say that. It might be insulting to most of you, but <laughs> that's what it is. Only, and is used in relation to the five key teaching that define these defense, the de- biblical defense of the Protestant movement. And they are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fida, Solus Christus and sola, soli de gloria. And the Latin terms in English mean by scripture alone, and what I mean by that is that you can understand or you can comprehend by scripture alone, say by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the last one, to glory of God alone. And this week we'll focus on sola scriptura, through scripture alone. And this is very much a foundational um, principle. Um, and it hinges on the four others being even possible. You couldn't affirm the four others without having knowing what they're based on. Knowing what we know about God, man, sin, and the gospel is revealed through his word alone. If this was not true, then, the other solas would be built on sinking and shifting terminology and rather than on the eternal truth of His written and His revealed Word. 
And all other doctrines and scriptural claims would be brought into doubt uh, without this starting point. And none of the other doctrines could stand on their own or trusted if we can't first agree on this principle of scripture alone that really is the unchanging truth of God's word alone. There's no sense even dealing with the others if we can't establish the first. Why debate that we are also saved by grace through faith alone if we can't establish by some certain perfect measure that that is indeed true that we can refer to collectively? We have to agree that Scripture and Scripture alone has the final say in the courtroom of our hearts and minds and, our, and, and teaching other believers. There's no room for this idea of my truth when we're trying to understand thus saith the Lord. Those are opposing statements. Luther, who is one of the more quotable Reformation teachers, understood this point very well. He said, We must make a great difference between God's word and the word of man. A man's word is a little sound. It flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God. He also said this, Whenever you hear anyone boast that he has something by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it, is, it has no basis in God's word, oh sorry, and it has no basis in God's word, no matter where, what it may be, tell him that this is the work of the devil. Whatever does not have its origin in the scriptures is surely from the devil himself. End quote. All right. <laughs> This gives you an idea of the kind of resolve Luther had at a time where the Catholics would imprison and even execute those who would challenge their orthodoxy and doctrine at the time. So he didn't mince his words. It's not from Scripture, then it is surely from the devil himself. That's an invitation to be executed, isn't it, uh, at that time? And in the modern church, we take this for granted that men have died and bled on that hill uh, to faithfully translate and proclaim and teach His Word. And today, so often we hear believers profess that they can understand the truth of God, and I'm I putting air quotes there around truth, or they have some revelation from God outside His Word. Very common. Um, you've probably heard those popular phrases. Let me just open this way. Those phrases um, that maybe somebody has had a word from God. You've heard that? Or, I have a word of wisdom for you. God is speaking to me. It's not uncommon to hear in some circles that slippery terminology. Like, and that's either said naively, which we give grace to often. Or it could mean that that Christian really believes he's receiving extra-biblical words from God. Audible wisdom. But if it's not from Scripture, it has no value. If it is of Scripture, then just quote Scripture. Don't claim that the wisdom came through you or to you in a mystical experience from your own little noodle. No, it's God's Word. If it's the wisdom of God, then it has come from the Scripture from God. Now, all the doctrine we read from the Reformers was not special revelation from this small, still voice. Or it was from manuscripts uncovered in the, in the Catholic catacombs or some extra-biblical writing. No, it's nothing new. They're reading the same word we're reading. The Reformers leaned on the authority of God's Word, the authorial intent in His Word, Scripture alone. So the reason the Reformers put their lives on the line and died on the hill of this sola scriptura, and some literally, is because they were protesting extra-biblical teaching. It was leading people to damnation. The Catherine doctrine had distorted the gospel and inserted other forms of works and nullified scripture alone. And, uh, and, and the other solas, which we'll look at later. So, if we're going to turn this morning to understand Scripture alone. Where are we going to turn? New Testament passage. Very familiar, I hope. Where will we start? Well, let's open your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3.16. And we'll, I'm going to quote it, read from it, 
And I'm going to be linking it to 1 Timothy 1, where Paul commissions Timothy to go uh, to Ephesus and to teach that body, that church, and correct the false teaching that had infested the church. But let me start with what Paul says to him. He says, All Scripture is breathed out. Sorry, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This passage stands on its own, right? It declares that Scripture is from God, breathed out, and because of this, the believe, it's the, only, the believer's only source for teaching, for correcting, for reproof, and for training in righteousness, so that you will be used for, for good work, can be used. And in verse 17 says that it's God's word alone that the man of God may be complete, meaning made spiritually complete through sanctification. And any use in the work of righteousness, in the church, in the body of believers, you cannot be useful without the Word of God working in you and through you. If we aren't being sanctified by God's Word, and if His Word is not what is equipping us, then we're not fit for spiritual work. We can't be useful in the body. Nor can we be useful outside the body as salt and light to the world. So what helps us appreciate this passage in 2 Timothy is the context here where Paul writes to Timothy in the first epistle. And in the first chapter, he gives Timothy a pretty big task. He commissions him to correct the mysticism and false doctrine in the church at Ephesus. Let's look at what Timothy was dealing with in that church. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 1. And we'll see here the context of the next epistle where he charges or or points him back to the Sola Scriptura in a sense. 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 7. I'll read that whole section there. He says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So, what's he saying? Timothy, go sort out those who are straying from the truth of God's word, teaching false doctrines, devoting themselves to mysticism and genealogies, which were very important at the time because it set up hierarchies. Like, um, you following Apollos or Paul, and, and they would set up tribalism in a sense, a caste system even. And then, Timothy, bring them back from this philosophy and vain debate to a sincere faith through God's word alone. What's he sending Timothy with? God's word. Not a program, not a how-to manual, not some modern book on how to make a great church. Not to orchestrate some pragmatic solution. He's saying, uh, go and proclaim the word. So you can see that the church in Ephesus has departed from the truth. Which then what? Open them up to falsehoods. If you don't depart from the truth, and you're feeding from the Word, it's very difficult to depart from what you know. Because what you know is God's Word. And that doesn't happen accidentally. Believers are not drawn away into false doctrines, mysticisms, and cults because they, they follow the principle of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and the source of truth and nourishment, and not their source of truth, but the source of truth. We really need to dispense with this idea of my truth. Because if this is something that we accept, then it means that there is no such thing as a lie. Think about that. If there's my truth, then there's no such thing as the lie or a lie. 
If truth is now a personal, strong opinion, a feeling, or an individual journey, whatever jargon you want to use, that really can't be known or verified by anyone else, or even denied by anyone else, there's no objective assessment whatsoever, then the opposite is also as absurd. There is no such thing as a lie, because those are also subjective and personal. So we're now into a, a tailspin into absurdity. So as the culture embraces the absurdity of relativism, we need to really stand firm on this passage. Even more, to be the salt and light where hopelessness and darkness is increasing, and in our day, at an unprecedented rate. I can't keep up with new terminology and fads and deception. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking in the last five years alone, it would be absurd to not be able to answer basic questions that are now not even permitted to ask. What is a woman? <laughs> you, if you search that on the internet, you will find paragraphs explaining that they can't know. So we're at that point now where we used to say what is truth. Now we can't say what is a cat. But back, let's go back to Ephesus here. <laughs> let's, let's stay in the context. So, but you can see here there's nothing new under the sun. right? When it comes to the churches that depart from the authority of Scripture, they go mad. They embrace other things that are untrue. And the church here had abandoned the truth. They cannot discern truth from error, and then they fall prey to these false teachers. Because what do false teachers offer? Whatever you want to hear. They know those ears are tickling, and that's what they offer. It's what their truth satisfies. And by the way, that's exactly what my truth really means. We hear that phrase so often we almost dismiss it without actually thinking carefully what they're saying. When you hear somebody claim that their truth is above criticism and separate from a truth, something that's verifiable, what are they saying? It's what they are saying is they are seeking affirmation in their sin. I say that carefully, but I thought it through carefully, and I'll stand on the hill for a while. Because in all the cases that you've heard it, this my truth it's always used to justify living in a more sinful way. You don't hear somebody saying, I want to love the Lord and bring Him glory and sacrifice for Him and live holy for His sake alone. But that's my truth. Don't, don't judge me. No, it's the truth. And you want to proclaim it. You want to be open and transparent and not claim it to be your private experience but one that you want to share with others because it's true, not your truth. So when people say my truth, it's always because they're drifting away from the truth. It's not, it's, it's personal and private and therefore secret, therefore often sinful. Anyway, <laughs> let's go back to Ephesus again. I, I'm, I, that one was for free. It's, it's not in the notes. So Ephesus had a, a big truth problem, Right? The false teachers had led them away from the truth of Scripture and were teaching what Paul says here is strange doctrines, unknown doctrines scripturally in the New Testament. And that included myths, and what did he say there also? Endless genealogies. Paul said that they were teaching these doctrines they learned from myths as well. They didn't understand the purpose of the law and used their misunderstanding of the law to teach a means of works through observances rather than using the law as a mirror to show our sin and our need of grace. So the church at Ephesus had placed philosophies and cultural practices on equal footing or even more authoritative than Scripture. And as these false teachers taught more false practices and beliefs, look at verse 4. What do you see here? That the church was growing wise to myths but ignorant to Scripture. So becoming wise in the things that are unknowable or untrue and ignorant to the things that are true. So Timothy here, as Paul commissions him, had quite a task. To shepherd a church that had been feeding 
on deceptions and myths and lies. And yet Paul asked them to address this church with full confidence that Timothy, as young as he was, was up to the task. He didn't have the depth of experience and and, um, years of age, but Paul knew that Timothy would proclaim the word faithfully. That's it. That is all that was needed. He wasn't going there to strong-arm the false teachers and tip over the tables and make a scene, because the Word would do that. He wasn't going there to debate the merits of the Old Testament law. God's Word would explain that Christ came to fulfill the law, not to nullify it. He wasn't there to debate genealogies because God's Word shows us that we're all one in Christ. Jew and Gentile are one. So the cultural argument then becomes meaningless. The genealogies become purposeless in the church. So all that Timothy was asked to do was to faithfully feed the sheep on the truth of Scripture. And that's what the early church was tasked to do. And that's what the enormous enormous challenge that the reformers had to address as well. And they were tasked with, although one could argue on a much larger European scale, with a much bigger population, and a much more religious population and indoctrinated population. But what was their tool? Their only hope in addressing that was the truth of the Word. And in our modern time as well, we're living in a postmodern and post-truth world that's seeping into the church. But we have what Paul had, and that is God's Word. So we know that this is precisely what Paul had in mind and precisely what he was asking Timothy to do. That was his admonition to Timothy because three chapters later in in 1 Timothy, in in chapter 4, he spells it out quite clearly. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And now skip to verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, while the task was huge, the prescription was easy. First, he tells Timothy to be an example of Christ-likeness here. Those are the first... Uh, to, uh, from verse um, 11 and 12 uh, to, to live for the ones that saved you live, live for the one that saved you live for Christ don't be hypocritical don't be unloving let your speech your conduct be done in love and in purity but that's an admonition for his testimony right Living godly as salt and light isn't enough. You've got to proclaim the truth of the gospel. That doesn't help others understand the change of who you were and who you are. It doesn't help them understand the source of your salvation. And Paul says that from from being faithful and persistent in teaching. Look at the admonition when it comes to teaching in verse 13. Devote, immerse, persist. Persist in what? The public reading and teaching. So Paul told Timothy that faithfulness to the Scripture was the only priority to help correct this false teaching in Ephesus. Because it's only God's Word that will work in the hearts of men. There's no other method or means or mystery that we can turn the hearts of men from slavery to sin to slavery, to Christ's righteousness. And this is what Paul was reminding Timothy from the first epistle and to the second. Let's now move back to 2 Timothy 3, and I'll start in verse 15, because Paul here tells Timothy that he must be committed to Scripture because, and this is what he reminds him, this is what he's reminding Timothy, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's reminding him here that there are no other methods, there's no other tools, or there's no substitute to Scripture that can change a man that is dead in sin or a church 
that is devoted to destruction. Both can only be corrected by faithful proclamation of God's word. So Paul then explains this in verses 16 to 17. This is where we're going to now unpack that section. You thought I had abandoned it and I was moving on, but no. In this section, let's move back to there, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. In this section, Paul emphasizes three points. And if you're taking notes, here's where you can start taking notes. (laughs) Uh, Three points, the source of Scripture, the sufficiency, and the significance. What is the source? Now, most translations in this section, and maybe it's the way you memorized it, is that all Scripture is inspired by God, right? Most uh, translations put it that, that way. But the Greek word here for inspired is actually God-breathed. I know this has been brought up a, a few months ago, and I'm trying to remember who was preaching, but I remember this. It's, it's not just the inspiration of men who pen God's word, but the very breath of life and truth from God. God breathe reinforces that it is God who is speaking. God is the source, the author, and used men to pen His authoritative word. And that's what makes Scripture authoritative. And that's what makes Scripture sufficient, is it's from God. The Bible authority does not rest on our decision to agree with it. We don't make the Bible true because we agree that it is true. It isn't true because it agrees with our truth. It isn't true because we decide that it makes sense or it's logical and we like it. It's also not true, and this is important, it's not true because it works. Have you heard that before? I've heard that defense. Well, you know the Bible's true because it works. What? Really? Is the Bible then a means to an end? I accept it because it worked. That's a dangerous approach to the Bible. Because lots of things work. Lots of things work that are untrue. Lots of things work that are a lie. Deception can make things work for you. Tricking people and deceiving them can help you win your way in the world. It can bring you wealth for a time. So, we also know that the gospel doesn't work in the millions millions of hearts of people. It doesn't work when we pray sometimes for one thing, and God answers in another way. It only works when and how God wills it. Not to say that it's unfruitful, but we don't take it as true because it works for us. It's perfect, and in God's will and sovereignty, it always works from His perspective. So what makes the Bible authoritative is that it's from God, a sovereign, holy, and righteous God. Now we know it to be true because we know the author, and not because we're convinced by evidence. So we're not pragmatists that believe the Bible because it works, and we're not archaeologists that believe it simply because we can connect the dots. We believe it, and we know it to be true because we know the author. Look what Peter says about Scripture. And I'm going to be going through a lot of passages, so there won't be time sometimes to turn there. But we will stay within 2 Timothy 3.16 as our reference Scripture. But Peter says this in 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation... For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried away by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God. Hmm. Peter here is affirming that those who are penning Scripture are not doing so by their own feelings, their own opinions, their own truth, or their own interpretation even. No prophecy, he says, was ever produced by the will of man. But he says this in verse 21, spoke from God. Now, there are some that interpret what I've just read prior to that in 2 Timothy 3.16 to mean that God breathed is referring to previous canonized Old Testament. That that was the only complete scripture at the time and therefore it doesn't really refer to the New Testament. 
But even the New Testament writers seem to contradict that, or they're deluded. Just like we read from Peter here, they demonstrate that they didn't think they were writing their own opinions. They knew they were penning the very words of God. Let's look at a few examples here. Uh, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Now that we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now there's a lot here, and I, I know it's almost going to be frustrating that I can't exposit all that I'm going to be using as a reference. But Paul knows that, that his writing is not from the hands of clever philosophies or philosophers, but from the Spirit of God, he says. He, he says, freely given us by God. Why? So that we might understand what? All the claims that he is imparting. The words of God. In verse 13, to those who are spiritual and can interpret those truths. Now the opposite is also true. That spiritual things are discerned by spiritual people. People that God has revealed them to. But he says there in, in, in verse 12 that we have received not the spirit of the world. Because the spirit of the world is contrary to the truth of Scripture. It's untrue. It's, it's vain. And he even contrasts that. Yeah, that's the, so the, that's the implication that um, spiritual truths are discerned only by the spiritual because it is from the spirit of God to those who God has revealed it to. But now let's look at, at uh, that was 17. Yeah, so verse 17 uh, when Paul here is dealing with false prophecy, uh, men who were drawing believers away from the truth, and he had harsh words for those people who were misleading and teaching falsehoods in the church. And uh, in verse 17 he said, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. Peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. That's quite an indictment. There are men who will peddle whatever they want people to hear and claim it from God. Or they may even be preaching God's word, but deceiving in its meaning. They're deceiving to suit a meaning they want you to hear or understand. It's always to mislead. It's always to draw them you away from God and others and draw you to themselves. There aren't false teachers that are trying to lead you to something else. It's always for their own benefit. And Paul's statement is bold, that they are preaching sincerity as commissioned by God, and they speak in Christ. So Paul isn't claiming the wisdom and truth comes from anywhere else except from God. In Colossians 1.25, we also read this, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of from God that was given me, sorry, given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now we read some of that this morning, didn't we, in, in the Bible reading. Now Paul here is, says he's preaching the word of God, not the Old Testament Word of God, because he emphasizes something important here. What is that the mystery? The mystery of the gospel that has now been revealed. It is to the Gentiles and the Jews that this Word of God is now revealed to. The hope of glory is real, but revealed by God through Paul. He's speaking of the gospel. He, he is not saying he's the source. He is saying he's the messenger. And now, let's now look at what Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. And, and take note how they received it in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul preached the word, and it was received by the church as such. The Word of God. It was God-breathed and received as God speaking to them. So, 
2 Timothy 3.16 is not referring to previously settled scripture, the Old Testament, but the whole counsel of God. There are many examples of apostles affirming this, and their, their writings, and they're always referring to God, always giving God the glory. And it's not authoritative because of them, but they're saying it's authoritative because of God. And they thank the church for receiving it as such, not as opinion from Apollos or from some other hero, or because he's Paul. He's saying, no, it's because it's from the truth of their Lord and their Savior. So we need to be on the same page. This may seem for many of you a very simple thing. Yes, Scripture alone. But when it comes to the truth of God's Word, we can't have any competition on this ground. Nothing personal that you can bring in. I don't want your private truths to to try to overrule God's Word. The truth of God is not relative and it's not personal. It's precise and it's eternal. So that's the source of Scripture. Now let us take us to the next part of this same Sola Scriptura, which is the sufficiency. We're still in 2 Timothy 3.16, the second part of it. The first part is all Scripture is breathed out. The next part is, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Well, I hope we've established the first, so we can now go to the second Because it is the Word of God, we can pretty much assume that it will be good, right? It is profitable, meaning that it's valuable to apply that truth in your life. It's one thing to argue the Bible is without error, but we now need to know that it's sufficient as well. We don't need more than it. It's perfectly true, but also perfectly sufficient, meaning enough, meaning you don't need more. Um... That there is nothing outside his word that can add to it or contradict it. And this is what Paul means when he says that scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, but also for training in righteousness. That means understanding and applying God's word in your life. So let's unpack a bit each of these points. Teaching, reproof, correction, and righteousness. So teaching. This means that from scripture we can know who God is. We can know what pleases God. We can know what He demands of us. We can know how to be reconciled with Him. We can know truth from error. We can know why we were separated from Him and why others are. And how to be right and reconciled. So Scripture is where we get our understanding of doctrine. And where we find, for example, salvation alone. And as believers, this should be where we not only know we should turn to for knowledge and holiness, but it's where our increasing desire should come from as well. As you mature in the faith, we should first turn to Scripture because that is the only place where we find the basic and profound truths that we need to grow. So this takes us to a very familiar passage where Paul speaks to the church about the only source for equipping in ministry. Now, when I said equipping, I know where you're going, right? Ephesians 4. So let's quickly read that. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness in deceit and schemes. Or deceitful schemes. So Paul here is explaining that the church can avoid being deceived. How? By being in the Word. It's His Word that keeps us from uh, not being able to discern the world uh, or to discern truth from error. It helps us understand the world we see here and to know how to serve Him and be equipped for the ministry of the body. And this is why Timothy was so urgently commanded to to read and preach, publicly read and preach um, that we looked at before. In 1 Timothy 4, to keep close watching yourself and on the teaching, Paul says to him, persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So there are no ministries that can build and equip people for ministry other than the Word of God. There are no programs, extracurricular things, feelings, special prayers. There are no self-help books 
or workshops that can mature the believer other than God's word. There's no other way to do church, let's say, than proclaiming the, God's word and by being obedient to it. That's doing church. There's no other way. Now Paul is reminding Timothy to keep the main thing main. If you want people to know who God is and how to live for Him, teach the Bible. <laughs> That's why it's profitable for teaching. Now, the next one, and I'm moving quickly because I'm watching the clock and I know how much I have here. <laughs> the next is reproof. The Bible is profitable for reproof. So the Greek for reproof means what? Rebuke, to correct. It means to show somebody they're wrong and to point them to what is right. It means that the Bible is what we use to determine that somebody is right in their understanding or in their, in their application, in their doing. It means scripture is, is a thing that is doing the judging, let's say. The preacher, the other believer, the mature one, he's just the messenger. Now this is a pretty unpopular in our era of my truth, right? Um, like Pontius Pilate, our collective culture is saying, what is truth? Actually, we're beyond that now. What is what? They don't, what is grammar? Right? It's, it's scary where we're going. Just 10 minutes ago, we were living in a time where you often heard, what, who, who are you to judge? Or don't judge me was another comment. But way back then, 10 minutes ago, they at least acknowledged there was a truth, right? You're being judged by some standard of right and wrong. But in the era of my truth and the disappearance of even lies, lies aren't even real. This is falling on deaf ears. We're living in a time where culture believes that any and all behavior is a personal preference and choice. The only thing that matters is it feels right. So that's what makes it good. But scripture is clear that there is a truth and there is error. And that the Bible is very clear that there are things that offend a holy God. And more than this, God is so offended by certain behaviors and, and beliefs that He is determined eternally to destroy those things that offend Him. He's declared that the unrighteous will be eternally separated from Him. We know this from um, the Christ's great white throne here in Revelations 2, 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The point to be made here is that it's no small deal to offend and to sin against the holy God, who is just and who will condemn. And so God's word provides us with what we know to be true, with what saith the Lord. It's important to know what is acceptable to Him. It's important to know that we can know Him through His Word and be made right with Him. And by God's perfect and holy standard, all behaviors, motives, thoughts, intentions can be confronted lovingly, I'll say, confronted lovingly, and judged righteously by His standard correctly. There's no behavior that isn't addressed in God's word, thankfully. So we're not left wondering, is this right or wrong? We can always go either implicitly or explicitly, God has spoken on such things. All things can be rightly judged by his words. And it speaks to the heart here, for Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this goes beyond what we can see and know. God knows the heart and intentions. So God's word is that holy standard by even, by even the thoughts and deeds are judged. So that's, it's perfect. And that's exactly what the hearts of man need, needs to be right with him. And when believers use the word of God, it is God that is doing the judging and the assessing, not man. So it is by God's standard alone that we reprove man when needed. And this is a liberating thing. I don't know if you thought about it or if you, did, or if you wanted to be the judge or you wanted to be the wise, um, um, what is it, Sangoma, Sangoma or something, some of the extra wisdom and you wanted to be the one to set somebody right. But this is actually a liberating thing because we don't need to convince man. We don't need to debate man. 
We don't need to reason with them on our own feelings and what we think they should do. No, we simply tell them what God says. And so the debate then is with God. Yes, it's not that easy. <laughs> um, to be sure, as a messenger, you may be unpopular at the moment because you're the messenger. You may get shot. Um, and you may feel the temporary reaction of that dis- uh, disapproval for, because you've been the one who's reproved. But ultimately, God gets the credit and the glory because he is, His living word did the reproving. But this brings us back to the, the next purpose of Scripture. It's also profitable for correction. The Greek word here is one that is used to describe correcting or writing something that is tipped, that's fallen over, or that is crooked. It's now straightened. It's a word that means to restore in an upright state. And this is what preaching the word does. It's for those who are lost, those who are disobedient, those who have fallen, those who need restoration, but it's also for those who are growing in sanctification. Because even you, righteous man, are imperfect, are still crooked. It's used to correct all of us. So preaching the word is the only way to be corrected. We've taught many times on this principle, haven't we? When we've done discipleship on Matthew 5, Matthew 18, where Christ prescribes very specific, very specifically what steps we are to follow when sin comes to light or somebody has been caught. And the purpose in both of these very prescribed relational steps is to deal with a brother lovingly but truthfully. Because the point is not to catch him out, to shame them, but to what? Restore such a one. We don't do it to be spiritual police, but to bear their burdens with them so that they come back into a right relationship with God. So Paul teaches this restoration principle in, Galatian, in the Galatian church as well. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, so as to fulfill the law of Christ. This means that the means of restoration is not a self-help pep talk. It's not a life coach friendship. It's not a gimmick but to bring the light and the weight of God's word to bear down on the heart of that person so that they can see their sin and then turn and repent. This is how we are made right with God. It shows them who they are, who they need to be in Him, and God will do this. So that's the correction. Next, Paul also tells us that God's word is profitable for what? Training in righteousness. And this is the last one, so don't worry. The word for training here is the Greek word paideia. I hope I said that right. And it is addressed or to address the whole scope of training. Um, picture a tutor or a, a governor training a young child into adulthood. It's the same word used by Paul in his letter to the Galatians again, Galatians 3.23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith that would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Some translations here use the word tutor instead of guardian, but it's the same meaning. Uh, It's someone that has a custodian watching over them, instructing them, instructing that young believer, young learner. And so, in this sense, the word is meant to be a guardian and a tutor that can instruct all matters in our lives for growth and maturity for the believer. It's meant to be taking an immature child of God and bringing them into maturity by tutoring through the Word alone. This means that the instruction must be ongoing. It's not a tablet. It's not an injection. And persistent, as he says to Paul. Um, Sorry, Paul said to Timothy, to persist in the teaching of the Word. You can't grow with one bit of food. You may be nourished for a moment, but you're not going to grow. You need proper portions and regular nutrition. And it also, you need, it needs to be thorough, it needs to be systematic, which means to explain the text. In the same way you plan out your diet and your meals, you don't just eat white bread, although that may be part of your meal, you know you need other elements, a balanced diet, right? Uh, you can't just feed off tidbits in the same way you can't just read short devotionals. You need to then unpack it so you can be sustained and otherwise you will not grow. 
So the Word of God cannot be your guardian if you're living as though you are self-sufficient and independent. So, God's Word accomplishes this. Uh, this work. And we know that it's sufficient to do it. So whether you are teaching doctrine, whether you are reproving sinners, whether you are maturing young believers, whether you are helping to move somebody to righteous living, it's only God's Word that can accomplish this. And that's why Paul instructs Timothy to be persistent and faithful in it. So, you see the source of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. Last is the significance. Turn with me to verse 17. That, or so that, the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The, the, uh, the title here, Man of God, is only used a couple times, I think, that I could find in the New Testament. And I, both times it's when Paul is addressing Timothy. And I think it's a compliment. <laughs> it's high praise. He's addressing Timothy as an elder and a, an instructor of God's word. The word complete, though, is translated sometimes adequate in some translations. It means that if we want to be fit for service, useful, qualified, capable to fulfill some specific task, then what must we do? Preach the word. And preach the word for the benefit of the hearer also. If the word is to be a guardian, that guardian or a tutor that we looked at, our hearts, uh, in our hearts it must be proclaimed faithfully and regularly so that we can apply it to be equipped. And that a phrase, equipped for every good work, can also be interpreted to mean enabled to meet all the demands of righteousness. Now that's heavy, right? Enabled to meet the demands of righteousness. It's the only thing that will make the weak mature and correct those who have fallen. It alone can teach and reprove, correct and train, and it alone can produce spiritual maturity. God speaking through the prophet of Isaiah says this, Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes, sorry, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So we know that it will not come back void. We know that God's word is not faulty, it won't fail, we know that it's our only source of righteousness, and proclaimed faithfully, it never comes back empty. It always accomplishes purposes. So when we look to the word that has um, the so world that has moved away from the authority of God's word, be encouraged that it is not you, but it is God who accomplishes His will and His purposes. And through your faithful obedience and proclamation of His Word, that will be done. And that's what the Reformers did. They, they opened God's Word to see that Catholic monstrosity that was preaching captivity to certain works and enslavement to certain practices. And, and nobody was free and nobody was unable to, to know their assurance of faith. They addressed it through what? Preaching the Word. But God did all the work. Like Spurgeon said, you don't need to defend the Word of God, just release it like a lion. It is not bound. It shines a light into the darkness like you can never do. And this is why it's vital to start with the beginning. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. That's our foundation. There's no competition to His Word. This is why Paul ended his letter to Timothy with this exhortation. Preach the Word. 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. to I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul's encouraging that even though we may not see the results we are looking for in our time, and we know that there are those who will reject the Word of God, it's not something that works on all people. And there are those who will no longer endure sound teaching. We must just preach the Word, and God will do the rest. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Father and God, we thank you, Lord, for such clarity in your word. And Lord, we have so many rich texts to unpack here that remind us and um, loudly proclaim like a clarion that your word will not return void, Lord. Your will cannot be thwarted. Lord, you will use us, but you are the, the, the message and the meaning and the means. And Lord, we thank you that you do use us. We thank you, Lord, for the conviction that we have to proclaim the truth of your word and to share the hope that is in us. And uh, Lord, we do it for your glory. So we thank you for this time around your word, uh, that we may uh, dwell in it. And uh, Lord, as we have learned this morning as well, to be in it often and to grow from it, that your word may sanctify us. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.